0: But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
1: This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com hangup hang up. All right, here we go. Hi, this is Josh Levine. I'm Slate's sports editor and the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. It is August 9th, 2016. This is the first episode of our daily podcast on the Rio Olympics. We're calling it the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. I hope you give us the maximum point value for execution on that name with just a few small deductions for artistry. On Monday in Rio, American gymnast Danelle Leva, who is competing in Rio despite being bitten in the left calf while breaking up a fight between his family's two bulldogs, fell off the high bar in the last rotation, and the U.S. men finished in fifth place in the team competition well behind winner Japan. Australia beat New Zealand to win the first-ever gold medal in women's rugby sevens, an outcome that Matthew McConaughey, who was in attendance for multiple women's rugby matches in Rio, correctly predicted, saying the Aussies were faster and better organized than the Kiwis. At a press conference for the apparel company Puma, Usain Bolt was asked the following quote unquote question.
2: I don't really have a question. I just want to say I really love you man. And uh and uh yeah. And so I just want to say Usain Bolt you're my favorite guy. I'm loving your moves and your feet and your style. I hope that you win. I hope that you got to go the ring and I hope you get to go and not get Followed by a segue. Okay, thank you.
1: In a moderately more impressive performance, American Lily King outtouched Russia's Yulia Efimova to win the women's 100-meter breaststroke final and back up the smack she talked and the finger she wagged when she said accurately that the Russian her rival, was a drug cheat. We'll have more on that from our friend David Epstein later in this episode. But first, the Rio game started on Friday, and not all of the stories out of Brazil have been positive ones. Police reported on Saturday that two people were killed near Olympic sites, one of them a man who'd been mugging people near the Maracanã Stadium, three Swedish tourists were kidnapped at gunpoint, a bullet was fired into the Rio Olympics equestrian media center, when the athletes and press leave town, these sorts of stories will no longer appear in the international press, but Brazil's bigger, longer-term problems will remain. As Frank For writes in his Slate cover story this week, everything in Brazil feels broken now. The president, Dilma Rousseff, is spending the Olympics in hiding, awaiting the fate of her impeachment. More than half of the members of the Brazilian Congress face prosecution charges. Brazil's GDP is 5.4% smaller than it was last year, and more than half of the residents of Rio, the city buffed up and built out for the big show, tell pollsters they would rather live somewhere else. He's back from Rio, joining us, Frank Four. How are you? Good. So the kind of surprising, slatey conclusion of your story is that there's actually reason for optimism, despite what you described as the sense of looming apocalypse that you felt when you were in Rio. So who are these experts, Frank, who are trying to tell us that all will be well (laughs) in, in Rio?
3: So the point is, is that really the country has hit bottom and it hasn't replicated a lot of the worst moments from its past history. It hasn't moved towards dictatorship there haven't been proto-authoritarian leaders looming on the horizon and in fact one of the reasons that things have collapsed is that there's a prosecutor or judge more accurately called Sergio Moro who is in the process of bringing down the entire political system and so for the first time in brazilian history there are plutocrats who are behind bars One of the reasons corruption is such a strong feature of Brazilian economics and politics is because there's traditionally been this linkage between the state and business, especially between the state and several big construction companies. And so that linkage, um, the desire of politicians to build massive projects, the desire to try to promote and protect Brazilian industry has become a Petri dish that's just bred corruption. And so this judge is struck at the heart of that connection. And also, for the first time in Brazilian history, you have powerful people who are actually on the receiving end of justice. And so all these things won't necessarily change Brazil for the better in the next year or two, but they do build the basis and create the possibility of improvement and evolution.
1: So, any economist will tell you that having the Olympics in a particular city is not going to be the boon that people believe it is. People try to sell it as being, and you, you know, mentioned the a very evocative construction of the Petri dish of, dish of corruption. When you introduce the Olympics into a Petri dish of corruption, that seems like an incredibly healthy medium for corruption yeah. to flourish. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, so we know a lot about this in the run-up to the World Cup, and that was two years ago now. And so when Maracanã Stadium was refurbished with an eye towards the World Cup into the Olympic Games, one of the family's construction companies, whose chief is now behind bars, played a big role in it. It was clear that there were cost overruns and inflations and corruption at the heart of that refurbishment of that stadium. And that became one of the big bases for those massive protests before the World Cup. I don't know if you recall those, but those were the biggest protests in the history of Brazil and play an important part in the narrative of collapse that we're seeing here. <laughs> I mean, I recall going to the World Cup and looking at the stadiums that it had been built for that and just saying my God, the corruption here is so obvious. You could just see that these things were coming together insanely late at inflated costs. Everything just reeked of corruption. And I don't think it's necessarily quite as clear yet that that was the process that went into the construction of various Brazilian Rio venues. But given the players and given the, the culture, it would be shocking if that wasn't rampant.
1: Okay, so you write the following, that with the retrospective taint of corruption, Lula, um, Dilma's predecessor, and Dilma failed to get full credit for their ambitious effort to provide the poor and working poor with dignity that society never really afforded them. Um, You talk about a program called Bolsa Familia, guaranteed uh, minimum income. But then later, you also mention this idea of developmentalism. Um, And the strong state building a strong economy and Brazil being a republic of the construction firms, kind of as you just went into. Are those two ideas necessarily incoherent? I mean, it seems like two kind of dueling philosophies that can't be reconciled. But is that not necessarily the case?
3: I don't think it's necessarily the case. I mean, I think that they viewed the state as nurturing Brazilian evolution, both economic evolution and social evolution. And so on the one level, this program, Bolsa Familia, which was direct cash transfers to the poor, was something that was actually incredibly cheap for the government to do, even though it made an extremely meaningful difference in the lives of the poor who received it. It's just like it's 0.5% of GDP. I think every economist of even conservative neoliberal economists would concede that it's an efficient, effective program. So on the one level, they were trying to build kind of a European style social democracy in the country. But on the other hand, they were trying to build this protectionist state where the state was playing a very, very strong hand in picking winners and losers in the economy, trying to develop certain fields through cheap credit and through high tariffs and through all of these other protectionist means. And, you know, I think there's no reason that those two concepts, the protectionist state and the social welfare state, should go hand in hand, except that they did in Dilma and uh, Lula's vision for the country. And I think, ideally, what Brazil needs to do is liberate itself from the protectionist part of the equation and maintain the social democratic part of the equation because you look at all the money that was getting funneled away into corruption and it's a serious chunk of GDP that was getting sucked away into corruption and you were ab- you were able to reallocate those investments into building better health and education systems investing in sewage and the like then it can make a meaningful difference
1: There's been a lot of good journalism about bigger issues in Brazil, but the Olympics are kind of designed to produce the sorts of nuggets that I read off in my intro, the sorts of things like the shot fired in the area of the equestrian media center and the Swedish tourists that get held up at gunpoint. And when the sewage situation gets talked about, it's in the context of like, Maybe there was a couch that a kayaker ran into. Oh, no, wait, that was just a joke, but ha-ha, actually, the waters are incredibly polluted and will be so um, for generations to come. So my question for you is, you know, in Beijing in 2008, there were a lot of conversations, I recall, about maybe the world's attention will be beneficial here if we're actually thinking about and talking about human rights abuses in China. So what do you think the world's attention can do for the situation in Brazil or in Rio, and what do you think uh, it can't do?
3: I mean, I think it's unlikely that it will stimulate much of a change in any sort of way, because so many of the issues that Brazil faces now are resource issues, and we know what the Olympics do. They drain resources. In order to pay for the massive amounts of security coverage that they need in Rio right now, the state has had to lend Rio de Janeiro, massive amounts of money. And Rio, before this, wasn't able to pay its cops. And after the Olympics, they're going to have even less money to pay their cops. And so the cops are going to end up going on strike. And that's going to end up creating a security vacuum in the city where, you know, terrible things will probably rush into the vacuum. So I see very little changing here in a positive way because, of the Olympics. I mean, I think that to the extent that the country was suffering from national malaise in the
1: sense of pessimism, you know, maybe there's a little bit of lift that comes from all the good feelings. Um, well, Brazil better damn well win the uh, soccer gold medal then. <laughs> yeah, not going to happen. Um, I actually think that the 7-1
3: loss to Germany left a real scar on the country and there's a history of this going back to the 1950 world cup The last time brazil before this hosted a world cup where they lost to uruguay in the finals in a crushing psychologically crushing defeat after which they changed the color of their uniform to that canary yellow in order to kind of break in a psychic way with that defeat and it haunts generations and um i think that last defeat kind of haunted generations and kind of gave the sense that the country, the World Cup and the Olympics were supposed to validate Brazil's arrival in the ranks of great nations. It was supposed to in some way show that they were moving the country into the developed world. And that defeat just seemed to be the perfect encapsulation of a country that had lost its way. You know, soccer... For all those years was the one thing that the country was world class at. They were better than anybody else in the world. And then to be humiliated like that at home and the one thing that you're supposed to be first class at, it's just the type of thing that you don't recover from very quickly. And it becomes a backdrop for politics and economics, even if it's hard to quantify its effects with any sort of precision.
1: Frank Ford is a contributing editor at Slate, his cover story. Is titled, Can Brazil Be Saved? Thank you, Frank. My pleasure. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, it's powerful, and it's completely online. Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. If you hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork, Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button. Their convenient system helps you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch, so if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash hangup. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. One of the major psychodramas of the Olympics thus far has been the contretemps between American and Russian breaststrokers. Here's David Epstein, a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book The Sports Gene, to explain the backstory of why Yulia Afimova was allowed to compete in Rio when so many of her countrymen and countrywomen were not.
2: On Sunday evening, after winning her semifinal heat in the 100-meter breaststroke, American Lily King called out her Russian rival, Yulia Afimova, on live TV.
0: We saw you in the ready room, and you watched Afimova, and she put up her number one, and you sort of went, yeah. what, are the, <laughs> what were the words that go with that gesture? Um, you know, you shaking your finger number one, and, and uh, you've been caught for drug cheating. I'm just not, you know, I'm not a fan, so, uh, you know, gonna go swim my heart out for USA, and, and hopefully that, that turns out the best.
2: King managed to beat Yefimova for gold, with the Russian coming in a narrow second and taking the silver. But the issue is much bigger than one race. Yefimova had twice previously tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, and the International Olympic Committee said she wasn't even supposed to be here in Rio. Prior to the Games, Because of evidence of a Russian state-sponsored doping system, the International Olympic Committee decreed that any Russian athlete who had previously tested positive for drugs and served a suspension would not be allowed to compete in Rio. So how is Yefimova here? In 2014, Yefimova tested positive for DHEA, a testosterone precursor, and then more recently for meldonium, the drug that Maria Sharapova made famous. But Yefimova served her full ban for that first positive drug test, and the second one is still being adjudicated. Because she had served her full ban for her positive drug test, Yefimova appealed the IOC's ban to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and was reinstated to the Rio Olympics. The most interesting point is that the IOC already knew this. Before the 2012 Olympics, the British Olympic Committee tried to ban sprinter Dwayne Chambers for performance-enhancing drug use, even though he had already served his full ban. And then, at that time, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that because Chambers had served his full suspension within the rules, he couldn't be banned beyond that. The IOC was well aware of that decision and knew that its decree to ban Russian athletes who had already served full drug suspensions would be unenforceable. The only reasonable conclusion is that the IOC wanted to look like it was being hard on drug cheats by banning all previous suspended athletes while really allowing them into Rio, knowing that the Court of Arbitration for Sport would reinstate them, and thus the IOC wouldn't have to do too much damage to the politically powerful Russian Federation.
1: David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica. He's the author of the excellent book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science, of extraordinary athletic performance. Now it is time for a quick after ball or after ring, after torch. Please email us at hangupatslate.com if you have a better name. One of my best Olympics memories is watching the 1992 Barcelona Games at my grandparents' house because my grandfather had bought this excellent thing called the Olympics Triplecast. This was a pay-per-view service that aired between 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. each day during the Barcelona Olympics. It showed events live rather than on tape delay, which is how NBC broadcast everything on the main free for everyone Bob Costas having channel. The blue channel had swimming and track. The white channel had individual sports like gymnastics and boxing. The red channel had basketball and baseball and other team events. They named the channels after the colors of the flag. What could possibly go wrong? I remember this actually being an excellent service. I remember it being seen though As an enormous failure. And indeed, the New York Times' Richard Sandemir wrote in 1992 that it had the potential of being a pay per view equivalent of the mega flop movie Ishtar. That potential was realized. The website Sports Rants has a good history of the triple cast, which lost an estimated $100 million for NBC and its partner Cablevision. The Cablevision exec who is in charge of the triple cast was James Dolan, who is now the owner of the New York Knicks and who apparently learned an early lesson about failure that he has been able to apply to his future endeavors. Dolan's father, Charles, said about the Triplecast, the public didn't find enough incremental value over what they could find at NBC. Local NBC affiliates refused to advertise it because they didn't want people to buy the Triplecast instead of watching their local affiliates. Instead of an estimated 2.8 million buys, NBC and Cablevision got 200,000. But without my grandfather, that would have been 199,999. I think the problem was that the Triple Cast was ahead of its time. We can now watch every Olympic event whenever we want to online. Then again, that online viewing is free if you have a cable login. So that's all it takes to make the American people happy. Give them everything and don't make them pay for it. An important lesson for us all. And thank you for teaching us Olympics Triple Cast. We'd love your feedback on this first Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra on the Rio Games. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash podcasts And leave us a comment and a rating when you're there. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Laura Wagner. The producers of the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra Podcasts are Afim Shapiro and Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Ralph Metcalf, and thanks for listening.
3: Encore. I got to get this. More. Do it again, do it again, do More. it again, give him
2: that mic. I'm up. I'm up. The, the, come on, it's 10 seconds of snapshot! I hope that you'll win, I hope it's your day. I hope you will go even though you got hit by a Segway. <laughs> okay, Thank you! Thank you!